Blog Talk Radio. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! You've heard about it. You've read about it. You've talked about it. And now you've found it. This is Alan Smith's Ask the Trucker Live on Blog Talk Radio, the largest radio social network in the world. With your hosts, Alan and Donna Smith, focusing on driver health, careers, regulations, and the important issues facing the industry. It's time to shut down that big rig, sit back, and come join the conversation. Ask the Trucker Live begins right now. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to the program. Today is Saturday, March 21st, 2015, and this evening we are right in the middle of our series of health shows we're doing right here on Asset Trucker Live. And, uh, Donna, I think I saw Dr. Uh, Rosarian trying to call in, but uh, I think he had our number. But uh, 347-826-9170 is the number to call in. And... Um, so these are a series of health shows. Uh, so why a show about sleep apnea myths and facts? Well, there's a, there's a growing concern nationally for improving one's health, and along with that comes awareness and education of all the numerous topics which go along with health, and there are many, as we know, diet, exercise, quality of food, preventive uh, uh, disease, uh, food to heal disease, GMOs, and, and the list goes on. But this is our third show in our health series, and if you'd like to review any of our shows, including the health series programs, they are available for replay and podcast downloads. Just go to the show page on Ask the Trucker Live. And our show tonight is Obstructive Sleep Apnea, Trucking Myths and Facts, and there has been quite a bit of confusion and worrisome and even some misquoting of facts, whether intentional or unintentional, that the topic of sleep apnea, often called obstructive sleep apnea or, or OSA, has brought about. So in my opinion, because because of the way sleep apnea was initially introduced to the trucking industry, drivers have become uh, defensive and, and worried and maybe somewhat even fearful about how OSA could affect their ability to make a living in professional truck driving. Initially, it was introduced uh, as a major reason for truck driver fatigue. And this in itself uh, created a lot of anger among drivers because, as we all know, there are many reasons which attribute to truck driver fatigue, including the nature and lifestyle of the profession itself. And you add to that inadequate truck parking and forced dispatch and HOS rules of fighting the 14-hour clock and so forth, and detention time, the, you know, the endless time waiting at shippers and receivers. So as you can see, avoiding all of these and just targeting OSA, obstructive sleep apnea, caused a lot of anger and fear and confusion. Another reason drivers became extremely defensive about sleep apnea is the fact it was associated with weight and BMI and even neck size. Donna, let's see. Uh, you may... You may want to call. Can you call him on the other phone? Yes. Okay, because now he's got a, a different number there. But give him a call. I thought we had that straightened out. Um, but the the weight, BMI, and neck size. 
So a, a very common complaint that you would find on almost any trucking forum was they're targeting big or obese truckers. It's discriminatory. So many also believe it was just one more way that government is attempting to get in our business or trying to get in our pocket due to added cost and sleep apnea testing. So in sorts, this uh, industry-created panic was largely caused by uh, carelessly eliminating the vital informational facts which were necessary for drivers to understand the seriousness of OSA and how it affects their health. Instead, there is, a, is almost a, a paranoia of the condition. And uh, a major part of this is, and I'll say again, the lack of understanding of what sleep apnea is, which should have been the way the issue of OSA was introduced in the first place, instead of suggesting that it was the main cause of truck driver fatigue and additionally suggesting that it then was the cause of fatal accidents. So, you know, I mean, a lot, a lot of things go into this. I mean, most everyone in the industry knows about all the studies that have shown that over 75% of car truck accidents are caused by the car's driver. So from the very beginning of the OSA issue, in my humble opinion, emphasis should have been on driver health and well-being. So the repercussions of sleep apnea and how it can affect your life, whether you're a truck driver or not, and how it can be treated uh, should have been the first steps when sleep apnea was first introduced a few years ago. And by not doing this, it caused many drivers to close their ears and mind to information that they really needed to hear. And many others just refused to accept information and chose to live in denial. But tonight we have as our guest Dr. Randolph Rosarian, a certified medical examiner of the FMCSA National Registry, and Elaine Papp, former division chief of the Office of Medical Programs at the FMCSA. So we're proud to say that both uh, Dr. Rosarian and Ms. Papp are advisory counsel for uh, North American Trucking Alerts, a membership website which offers awareness and solutions to our industry's issues. And uh, Donna is 718, is that him? Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, they, they changed their area codes on me trying to fool me up, but you can't do it, doctor. I got you. And uh, Dr. Rosarian received his medical degree from Stony Brook University School of Medicine, his medical practice, U.S. DOT Medical Examiner, on the web at U.S. DOTMedicalExaminer.com is located in College Point, Queens, New York, and uh, he specializes in physical medicine, uh, rehabilitation, and occupational medicine, and as a recognized leader in the field, he received the 2013 Best of Queens Award for Department of Transportation Commercial Driver License and Medical Examinations. And Dr. Rosarian has written numerous articles, three articles, on the North American Trucking Alerts.com website, uh, Doctor Shopping for a Certified Medical Examiner, uh, Trucking Controversy, uh, Determining Who is at Risk for Sleep Apnea, and Drivers Certified Medical Examiners Are Not Out to Get You. And it's all great reading if you want to go over there and check that out. Elaine Papp has a broad range of occupational safety and uh, health experience, a very well-known name in the industry, from private industry to international organizations. And previously, Elaine worked for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, in several capabilities, analyzing legislation, writing congressional testimony, uh, crafting regulations and compliance assistance materials, and participating in on-site enforcement inspections, and conducting presentations themselves on behalf of the agency. 
And Ms. Pat presently has a consulting firm, Health and Safety Works, which provides occupational and transportation health consulting services through training, advising, conducting presentations, uh, developing health and wellness programs, and research for groups, uh, organizations, and companies. And Health and Safety Works, uh, her new uh, uh, consulting firm, focuses on two areas. One, the motor carrier industry, and two, industries affected by OSHA regulations. So on Asset Trucker Live, we, we, we believe that knowledge is most important, not just for your job, but in this case, for your life and well-being. So together, Dr. Rosarian and Ms. Papp will establish the important facts about sleep apnea, uh, including the definition and cause of the condition, the serious repercussions if left untreated, uh, talk about the testing and treatments. Uh, they will also answer many of the myths which have been circling around. One, Donna, we just heard not <laughs> just before you said I know. I just, it was just one on Facebook uh, uh, less than, I don't know, 10 minutes ago or so that I caught it. Um, Alan and him have been going back and forth a little bit. Um, I'll, I'm just going to interrupt you for a minute, Alan, because I wanted just to... Uh, to read it here if I can find it. Anyway, they said there is no law. You do not have to be tested for sleep apnea. And then again, it, you know, they went on in the discussion and said, well, you know, if you're at risk, you know, you could you could lose your, your card if you don't go for the test and things like that. But we'll, we'll discuss it all in the show. But that's one of the myths saying it's all hype. Um, you don't need to uh, take the test. And that's it. There's no law saying you can't get your medical card. If you, and, and, and this is the type of stuff that goes around, and people believe it, and then they get to the the DOT uh, medical examiner, and they tell them, I don't have to take a, a test. And, you know, so anyway, we'll we'll clear it all up tonight. Sorry, Alan, I interrupted you. No, that's okay. We've got a lot to go through. Probably won't get through everything, but a, a portion of the show will address the facts about regulations and sleep apnea one area where information is being, uh, you know, somewhat distorted. So big show this evening. If you have a question for our guest, our call-in number 347-826-9170. And once on, uh, just press the number one key on your phone, and I'll know you wish to join in on the conversation. Our program this evening, Obstructive Sleep Apnea, Trucking Myths and Facts. Our special expert guest, Elaine Papp and Dr. Randy Rosarian, all coming up. On Ask the Trucker Live. You're listening to Ask the Trucker Live with Alan Smith on Blog Talk Radio. Don't go anywhere. Alan and Donna will be right back. Hey everybody, Alan Smith here. Have you been driving a big rig for a while now and considering starting your own business as an owner-operator? Well, Lone Mountain Truck Leasing offers the best lease purchase plan in the industry. With a small down payment and monthly payments around $1,000 or less, you make the monthly payment and when the final payment is made, they hand over the title. It really is that simple. There is no big balloon payment at the end and secondly, the truck is yours, not a lease plan under one truck and company. So if becoming an owner-operator is your goal, do it the right way. Do it the best way. Contact Lone Mountain Truck Leasing on the web at LoneMountainTruck.com or give them a call toll-free at 866-512-5685. That's LoneMountainTruck.com. 
This is Ask the Trucker Live with Alan Smith. To be a part of the program, call in now at 347-826-9170. Skype users can call in by clicking on the Skype button on our show page. To be a sponsor of the show, email Donna at info at askthetrucker.com. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back. Uh, I was trying to get air, all the callers area codes on the line, but just didn't quite make it. I mean, we have Illinois, Florida, Colorado, Louisiana, Texas, uh, Missouri, uh, Delaware, uh, as far as I got. But, hey, thanks for thanks for tuning in. appreciate you listening. Our guests, uh, Elaine Papp and Dr. Uh, Randy Rosarian. And, uh, Elaine, welcome to the show. It's been a while. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm really good. I'm glad to have you back, and uh, you've had some quite a few changes there. I got a new consulting firm arm, but we hey, we got a good show tonight, and uh, glad to have you on here to straighten up some of these myths and facts that you know flying around out there. Yes, thanks. I am really interested in talking to everybody and making sure people understand really clearly uh, what the FMCSA does require and what it does not require, and what the rules are. Because I've seen a whole lot of information that is just really just sort of skewed and not quite accurate. So I'm hoping to straighten it out today. Well, good. Yeah, that's what we're going to try to do our best. And uh, Dr. Uh, Randy uh, Rosarian, it's been a while, but hey, welcome back to the show. Glad to have you here. Thanks for having me back, Alan. Uh, It's great to be here. And I think we're also very fortunate to have Elaine here with us uh, for this show. Um, You know, my part of uh, contribution to uh, today is... uh, I want to take a step back a little bit and go back to see how this whole thing maybe has started, to talk about the medicine behind not just sleep apnea, but a little bit about the sleep in general. Because before you can really um, go into any pathology as far as medicine goes, you really should go back and see what normal uh, physiology is. And sleep is fascinating. It has fascinated everyone from poets to philosophers to scientists. And I think people forget that that uh, it, it is something that's been of concern to humankind from the beginning of time. If 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 you know if we go back that far, and the current issues we're having here with OSA obstructive sleep apnea is both one 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 smidget of 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 what sleep is and, and sleep disorders are. Well, I mean, and that's a good point. That's a good place to start because, uh, I mean, we. <laughs> It's great to have you, you you on here, and Elaine. I mean, you're you're a doctor. You're in the field. You're in the a medical examiner registry, and Elaine comes from the FMCSA and the regulatory side. So we can get really great information, two views here. Well, doctor, let's let's just start with that. I mean, you know, that's a good point because a lot of these drivers, especially the veterans and everything, you know, they, they say a lot of times. A lot of times, I hear, well, you know, I. I get by on four or five hours of sleep a day, you know, not a problem. I've been doing it for 30 years, and I can do it another 30 years. Tell us about the importance of sleep, the stages of sleep. And, I mean, there's much more to it than just, you know, you get laying down and getting that, you know, much more to it than just rest. Tell us about it. Well, uh, sleep is a vital and very basic function of, of, of human of the human body, and without it, uh, we run into a lot, a lot of troubles. Uh, just look at what uh, certain authors like Edgar Allan Poe, for instance, said. Sleep, those little slices of death, how I loathe them. 
And you, you look at what he said, you look at what some other authors have said. We're not talking about the scientists yet, but people have always had this issue with sleep and how it affects them and their lives. Um, we know that uh, sleep medicine, uh, actually, we should tell people that sleep medicine is a discipline of medicine in general. It's relatively young. It really got its start in the 50s. And if you look into the, the, the history behind sleep medicine, one prominent figure will all pretty much stand out. Is, his name is Dr. DeMent, William DeMent. He basically pioneered sleep medicine uh, from the beginning in the 50s when, when he started to get involved in it up till now. His many accomplishments are too many to talk about on this show right now, but just to go through through them quickly, he basically discovered REM sleep's association with dreams. He discovered narcolepsy. He developed all the techniques to monitor brain activity, eye movements, uh, muscle contraction, uh, to really map out the stages of sleep that you're asking about. Um, he developed the first sleep lab in 1970 at Stanford University in California. And his fascination with sleep started with his own problems keeping awake in class in medical school. And that led to his whole lifetime <laughs> study and accomplishment. He used to get kicked out of class for sleeping a lot, supposedly. But something interesting <laughs> happened in that sleep lab in 1970. Uh, he started getting a bunch of patients complaining of you know, excessive daytime sleepiness, and he knew they didn't have insomnia and they didn't have narcolepsy, and the new term at that time was OSA, obstructive sleep apnea. Imagine that. <laughs> so yeah. he was fascinated by it, and he and others at Stanford and other labs all over the country and the world, of course, uh, really started developing the strong correlation that they thought existed between OSA, obstructive sleep apnea, obesity, hypertension, and heart disease. He also developed the apnea hypopnea index that we talk about a lot right now, and he started the, uh, an organization that led to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine itself. So um, he accomplished a lot, and, and I, I think the importance is to look at uh, how some of these uh, pioneers went about developing this sleep medicine to see that initially started as a fascination. Even doctors at the time thought sleep was really just a, uh, you kind of dropped out of the world from the face of the planet until you woke up and nothing really happened. <laughs> and they didn't know what the dreams were about until Dr. DeMent really uh, pursued that. Um, a, a comparison that you can use is uh, the work that Masters and Johnson's, for instance, did in terms of human sexuality. Uh, so it's the same thing with sleep. So while he was mapping all these stages of sleep and the physiology, et cetera, um, why do we need sleep? Well, there's a lot of things that happen during sleep, and there are about four stages of sleep. And uh, it goes from non-REM to REM sleep. But in his studies and other, uh, other scientists and researchers, they found that when you deprive of sleep, whether it's due to uh, intentional, uh, uh, I guess it's due intentionally because someone is just, you know, as you say, cutting back on sleep, they're working, et cetera, or due to any kind of disorder, uh, your body's ability to get rid of toxin and waste are really diminished. I mean, your brain, there's a lot of things when, when you sleep. Um, 
you repair a lot of body tissues, uh, yeah, bones and muscles. Your immunity is strengthened during sleep. And there's some research going on right now at John Hopkins University, and they're really looking at, at the brain itself during sleep, and they've seen or they've surmised that there a lot of there's a certain kind of expansions that happens in the brain where yeah, waste products and toxins are removed. And if you don't sleep, you know, I mean, you get less than eight hours. You, you know, people that were going by on four, six hours of sleep, they can have severe impairment of cognitive function. Um, uh, even worse, some of the deeper layers of the brains can be affected uh, that control emotion, impulse control, and um, and. And, and and also overall the metabolism is affected. So, in terms of how your body handles sugar and um, and the food that you put into it, uh, so there's a also the development of insulin resistance and type two diabetes that go hand in hand with lack of sleep. So, it is a very important thing. You can get by for a period of time and uh, think that you're okay, but we all develop what they call a sleep debt. A debt. And at some point, you will have to repay that in order for your body to, to, to heal and grow properly. Um, I don't want to go too much into the stages of sleep because there's so many things here. But just to break it down quickly, in normal sleep, you have three stages of non-REM or non-rapid eye movement. Uh, it progresses from lighter sleep all the way up to deeper sleep in the non-REM sleep from N1, let's say, to N3. Uh, and then you go into REM sleep. So what happens is that during the night, you cycle between non-rapid eye movement or non-REM sleep to REM sleep, and the length can vary. It can start from 70 to 100 minutes between the, that cycle and go up to 90 to 120 minutes later on at night. When you get to REM sleep, that's when dreams actually occur, as a lot of people know, and there's different kind of REM sleep. Sometimes your sympathetic system is up, the one that makes your heart beat faster, your eyes move, and sometimes it's the parasympathetic system that takes over. So nevertheless, to, to, when you go to sleep, you don't, you don't just suddenly you know, start dreaming. It doesn't happen that way. There's stages to it, from light to deeper sleep, which is non-REM, into REM sleep, and that happens about four to five times at night during an eight-hour period. So the first REM sleep that you experience can last maybe less than 10 minutes. But the last REM sleep, by the time you, eat, you sleep at eight hours or so, could be more than an hour. So, you know, if you have any kind of interruption, whether you have a, you're interrupted because of work or because your partner is bothering you or because you have sleep apnea, you can see how that architecture or those, you know, well-designed stages of sleep get interrupted and can lead to, you know, uh, health problems. Well, yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, I hear all the time and, you know, and I've spent years on the road and I mean, even local driving, I mean, local driving, Donna, you remember, I, I, I mean, I was, I was averaging being up 19, between 19 and 20 hours a day, but you know, your body got used to it and you know, you could do that. But from what I'm hearing from you, it's more than just, you know, laying down and getting the rest. I mean, you're talking about the body repairs and regrows tissues and builds bones and muscle, and the brain gets rid of waste products and toxins, and this all happens when, you, when, you, when you're sleeping. So, 
I mean, Donna, it's a lot more than just laying down and getting your rest. So when these drivers are saying, oh, I've been getting by on four or five hours sleep a year, years, there's much more to it. Oh, you're on mute. It's not just the drivers. I mean, a lot of times I brag. I only need four or five hours. And um, when I was reading some of the the research since we started these um, these health shows, specifically on sleep apnea, I realized that not enough sleep uh, affects your emotions. And I noticed that when I'm very, very tired, I cry. And when I read that, I, I, it made perfect sense. Is that the reason, Dr. Rosarian? Is, could that be the reason? I'm just, like, so tired? Um, everyone can be affected differently. Uh, your response you know, with the crying is one aspect of sleep, uh, of a sleep-deprived brain where deeper layers of the brain are affected. Uh, the one particular layer that controls emotions and memory is the amygdala, they call it, is deep inside the brain. Uh, you know, we have the old brain and the new brain. Uh, the old brain controls all autonomic or uh, automatic type of functions, you know, sleep, respiration, cardiac, et cetera, and the new brain, the cortex for the higher function, et cetera. So that part that causes you to cry because of lack of sleep is because of your amygdala and possibly some other parts of your cortex as well, like the prefrontal. So your brain areas that have been deprived aren't able to heal heal tissues and repair itself is is what's basically causing the emotional um how should i put it emotional uh meltdown that that's what it is <laughs> yeah, okay <laughs> okay I, I didn't know it was to that extent <laughs> okay so hey now now i know what her problem is <laughs> It's the prefrontal cortex, emotion, and impulse control. So yeah, now, don't blame it on the hormones anymore. We've already we've already diagnosed what Donna's problem is. So hey, <laughs> uh, hey, all right, hey, uh, Elaine, let me get you in here because you know, like I said earlier, you're from the regulatory side, and man, there's so many myths and everything going on there. <laughs> Doctor Rosarian started out kind of giving us the importance of the uh, the need for sleep. Where's a good place for you to start, Ed? I, I mean, I have my questions ready, but I wanted to give you that opportunity as as doctor if you have a, a point where you would like to start specifically. Well, I just have, I have a whole lot of myths that I thought about and wrote down, and I, I just wrote down the one that Donna um, thought about, too, that she saw on Facebook. I have heard so many things over and over again. I've heard that the FMCSA requires people who have a BMI of 35 to have a sleep study. I've heard that the requires someone who has a, a um, neck circumference of greater than 17 to have a sleep study. That's a myth. Mm-hmm. I've heard that FMCSA has no requirement. Like Donna said, that there is no law that requires you to have a sleep study, and that's a myth, too. So I have a bunch of them that I can go through. Would you like me to start with one or two? Well, let me let me start with one. See, I mean, you know, hey, I run the show here, Elaine. Okay. No. All right, we got all that straight now. All right. So, hey, I got to give him a little hard time. I haven't talked to her in a while. I think you uh, do what? I said, yeah, I, I know. You, we haven't talked in a long time. I thought yeah. I ran the show. 
Yeah. Well, she does, but you know, I, I didn't want to do that, throw that out over the air. But you brought up a really good point there, Elaine, and it's probably the biggest one that Donna and I hear all the time. We just heard it from the show either, so let's get that straightened out. I mean, FMCSA, there's there's absolutely no regulation uh, among FMCSA when it pertains to OSA. Well, here, I'll read it. Per, 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 right here is what it says. There is no federal law that says you have to pass a sleep apnea test in order to get a medical card. Okay, and that, that came straight from a driver on a, a message just before the show. So, Elaine, what do you think? Okay. Um, the physical qualifications regulations are found in the federal um, register under the uh, the Code of Federal Regulations under 391.41. And the one on respiratory conditions is 391.41B5. Now, that sounds very regulatory, but that's how the government does, you know, sort of talk about where you can find things. So it's CFR 49, 391.41B, and it's the respiratory uh, qualification. And what it actually mm-hmm. says is that a driver can operate a commercial motor vehicle if they have no established medical history or clinical diagnosis of a respiratory dysfunction that's likely to interfere with his or her ability to control or drive a commercial motor vehicle. Now, that's written in a very, very broad way. And obstructive sleep apnea, as Dr. Rosarian was saying, is a respiratory condition, and it is one that can likely interfere with the ability to control or drive a commercial motor vehicle. And what the agency actually does is it writes most of the physical qualifications in a really broad way because if we were going to define every little thing about each medical condition that the body has, it would be a medical book that's probably four or five inches thick. So the agency writes its regulations very broadly and then it allows the medical examiner to use their best practices, their clinical evaluation of the driver, their knowledge about medical conditions to discern whether or not a medical condition that a driver has can possibly interfere with the ability to safely operate. And their agency has done an advisory criteria, which you can find on every single medical examination report form. It's near the end. of the form, and it's in teeny tiny little print, but it's all the advisory criteria on everything that the agency requires, and it talks about obstructive sleep apnea. I posted that on the radio page. Um, If you go to the link to the radio show, there's a bunch of links, and that's one of them. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, what, the advisory criteria? Yes. uh Uh-huh. It's right on the blog. Yeah. Yeah, so in the advisory criteria... It says that um, obstructive sleep apnea is one of the conditions that may interfere with the ability to operate a commercial motor vehicle. And the advisory criteria say that um, if a medical examiner detects that a driver might have obstructive sleep apnea, I'm not quoting it exactly, 
that the medical examiner must refer the driver for further evaluation. Now, what it doesn't say is that they have to have a sleep study if they have a BMI of 35. It doesn't say they have to have a sleep study if they have a neck circumference of 17. So there is a regulation that requires a medical examiner to evaluate respiratory dysfunctions. Obstructive sleep apnea is a respiratory dysfunction. It's mentioned in the advisory criteria that if a medical examiner detects a driver or suspects that a driver may have obstructive sleep apnea, that he must, medical examiner must, send the driver for further evaluation. So that's and the key what, word there is must. Yes. It doesn't say should. It doesn't say might. It says must. So okay. There is, there is a regulation, and that regulation is interpreted in the guidance document. Now, this guidance, the advisory criteria, it's been out there for years and years and years. It is not new. It is not anything new that has come up since 2008 when the agency started looking at obstructive sleep apnea. It's been around a very long time. Okay. Which leads me to the next question because let's say, you know, drivers tell another driver, oh, if they tell you to get a sleep test, you just refuse it. You you tell them I'm not going to go. Well, what is going to happen to them? If they say, no, I don't think I want to go for that sleep test. They won't get a medical card. If a medical examiner believes that the driver, because of the best practices, because of the clinical evaluation, because of the uh, physical that they've done on the driver, if they believe that the driver needs to have a sleep study and the driver refuses to do that, the medical examiner will not issue a medical card. Uh, Dr. Rosarian, let me just ask you this question then. So what are you basing your suggestion or are you telling them they need a a sleep study test done? What what do you tell them? Well, you have this, 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 and this, or, you know, what's the criteria? Well, as Elaine said, you have to use your best medical judgment, and this applies to every medical condition and not just sleep apnea. So these are things that we do as medical practitioners, whether you're a doctor, nurse, or uh, what have you, with every patient that we see as far as treatment or even as far as a, a medical certification or qualification exam. It's no different. Um, we have to look at people's risk factors. Yeah, first, the history is the biggest thing. Uh, 85% of the information that, that you're going to use to determine where what's wrong with someone or what you need to do for them or in the history. And then you do a physical exam on them, and that's that's not anything different than what we're used to doing. So as far as uh, people who are at risk for sleep apnea, um, you have to look at are they in that group, male, older male, uh, you know, their weight, their body mass index, uh, all that, uh, and whether they, they smoke, whether they drink, uh, what they complain of. Some pay, some drivers would, will tell you that I have problems if they're honest enough sleeping, uh, you know, or, or getting up in the middle of the night to go to urinate, or I wake up tired, and when I go for a long drive, I watch TV, I feel like I'm falling asleep. Uh, so that's all part of it. Um, the interesting thing is that people think that well, 
you're just going to look at someone who's obese and say you need a sleep apnea. It doesn't quite work that way. And when you do the physical, if their blood pressure is even, you know, is high or it could be borderline high, if they have any problems with, you know, glucose control, maybe they might be type 2 diabetic, that's all part of the picture. Um, but the thing to really keep in mind is that what the driver tells you, if the driver says, look, you know, I don't have any problems whatsoever. Uh, and you look at the driver, let's say, for example, the person is three, 400 pounds, is, is very obese, they have a lot of adipose tissue and all that sort, all that sort of thing. Uh, you have to, as a clinician, also take that with a grain of salt. Uh, meaning, uh, is this person being entirely uh, honest with me, frankly? And number two, what is one of the biggest risks for OSA, obstructive sleep apnea? Obesity, 70% of people who are obese are, have been shown to have sleep apnea. So even if they give you a completely negative or uh, uh, history in terms of the risk factors they look for, that has to be taken into consideration. Um, we don't have a set BMI, as Elaine says. Uh, in the past, they've thought about it because other studies, research studies, have shown a strong correlation with increasing BMI and, and sleep apnea. Uh, I think at some point you have to determine, you have to weigh everything uh, that uh, that you have in, in front of you to make that determination. It's not always easy. It's not always the same for every single person that you're going to see in the office. Well, one of the articles you put up on uh, North American Trucking Alerts in our um, consulting there, um, you you got into the you know how your patients react and everything to you and so what what information can you give drivers there's a lot of drivers out there and I know I was one of them and said you know I don't have OSA I, I sleep like a baby I feel fine I mean what would you what would you tell someone like that I mean they have that mindset where they just know in their mind they don't have it because to them they they're, they feel like they're sleeping fine, not any problem. And, and that's true, and that's the same response I get from people who have hypertension. They'll look at me and say, I don't have hypertension. <laughs> Your machine is wrong. Uh, there is no warning sign for uh, uncontrolled hypertension. You, you, you can get a stroke, a heart attack, and die. Simple as that. Most people that have sleep apnea don't know that they have sleep apnea because they're asleep. It's kind of like the person who gets into a car accident and says, yeah, I lost consciousness. How did you know you lost consciousness? If you remember you lost consciousness, then you did not lose consciousness. <laughs> when you're asleep <laughs> and you have sleep apnea, you're not going to know that you have problems breathing when you're asleep unless your partner tells you, unless you or your partner kind of recognize and understand the symptoms. But the, the only area you can really know for sure you have sleep apnea is if you go for a sleep test. Uh, so uh, this reaction is not just with sleep apnea, it's with a lot of things that I encounter. It's not just drivers, don't get me wrong, it's my patients as well. And what what happens if, I mean, okay, I'm, I'm reading Facebook right now because this is quite a discussion as we have this show. And uh, they're saying that, oh, yeah, if you just walk in with a big neck or, you know, or you're overweight, they're automatically going to make you get uh, be sleep tested. And what are you gonna what What are you gonna tell them? Well, the, the right thing to do, first of all, I tell them sleep apnea in itself is not automatically disqualifying. If you're worried about losing your job, that's not 
something you need to worry about. Not treating sleep apnea or any medical condition that warrants treatment can be disqualifying. And it could be temporary. There are very few things that are absolutely disqualifying that only uh, the FMCSA or it can give you a, a, an exemption or waiver. Those will leave that out of there. There's only a few of them. But everything else should get the right care and it's treated, it's under control. You show that compliance you, uh, with a medical professional, you can still drive. So first of all, I tell them you need to take that worry, that worry that you have out of the equation. Because if you do the right thing, you get treated, you have the condition, you still can drive and make a living and earn your, and earn your living. It's not, that's not the issue here. Um, well, no, what I think they were saying was if you have a big neck, they're going to make you go for a sleep test. Well, it depends what you mean by a big neck. You know, like I said, you know, people have a big neck and they think, well, it's muscle. Well, no, it's not usually, you know. Uh, it's, it's fatty tissue, it's adipose tissue. A lot of people don't believe that they're overweight or they're fat or they have excess tissue uh, until you actually tell them what percentage body fat they actually have. Uh, is it automatic? This is relative. If, if I have someone that comes in with a large neck and there is, and, and, we, and I mentioned this, that 70% of the time they will have sleep apnea, you know, people that are obese. Should they get one? They should get one because it's for their health, uh, number one, and of, of, of course public health as well. But if you don't, would you want to get something done for something that you may have? It's kind of like, well, I kind of have some symptoms, doctor. I have weight loss, I have this and that. Don't you want to know that it's nothing serious? That, that's the, I think the problem is with the attitude. Uh, will most of them get a test? Possibly. Why? Because we just said that obesity is one of the highest risk factors for sleep apnea. If you have a large neck, I don't think it's just your neck that's large. Uh, you may have central obesity. Your belly could be protruding, and that's an indication of obesity, and that's a very high risk for sleep apnea. Um, so th th these are the things to consider. Well, <clears throat> Elaine, let me ask you something. I was just kind of looking over these uh, notes here, and <clears throat> I'm even a little confused. You had... You had mentioned just before about the FMCSA guidance. I mean, not so much the 391.41b5, the regulation, but the guidance, where uh, in that guidance is also said that if a medical examiner believes that a driver has OSA, they must send the driver for further evaluation. Well, I'm looking at over some of the, some of the questions I received from drivers, and, and they're talking about the, the BMI of 35 or next circumference of 17 or greater, and, you know, a medical examiner requires that. And now my understanding is that the FMCSA doesn't have specific or detailed guidance or requirements for when a medical examiner must send a driver for sleep study, but up there in yeah, the guidance, as you said earlier, they do, right? No, no. Um, what I said earlier was the advisory criteria, um, which is the only guidance that FMCSA has published, is the advisory criteria. And that advisory criteria is the one that I mentioned that has, um, if a medical examiner believes uh, from his clinical evaluation and best practices that a driver has a respiratory condition like obstructive sleep apnea, they must send the driver for further evaluation. 
What the FMC okay. state does not have is detailed, prescriptive, must send if you have this BMI of 35, must send if you have this next circumference of 17. And um, if you don't mind my telling you a little bit about the history from the Medical Review Board and, and so forth, um, mm. I can go on and, and explain that. Would you like me to do that now? Sure, sure. Okay. Um, what <clears throat> the Medical Review Board in 2008 started looking at uh, sleep apnea, and they are a group of physicians that are medical examiners and are appointed by the Secretary of Transportation. And so the group that was seated at that time, 2008, did uh, evaluations on um, obstructive sleep apnea, and they wrote recommendations. And in their recommendations, they mentioned a lot of very prescriptive information that they recommended to the agency that the agency take up as guidance. And then in 2012, the Motor Carrier Safety Advisory Committee, or MICSAC, and the MRB had joint meetings about obstructive sleep apnea. And they went through all sorts of studies and the evidence reports and expert panel meetings and so forth, and all this information that they had gleaned from a variety of sources and came up with a joint MICSAC-MRB recommendations to the agency. And this has very much confused people. Because right. the MRB and the MICSAC are advisory committees to the agency. They are advisory committees to FMCSA. They are not advisory committees to medical examiners. They're not advisory committees to drivers, to companies, to carriers. They are advisory committees to FMCSA, and they make recommendations to the agency. The agency is governed by the Administrative Procedures Act. And before the agency issues guidance, the agency must publish it in the Federal Register for public comment. The agency has never taken action on the recommendations from the MRB or the MICSAC. But those recommendations are what has sort of lit the match to cause this huge you know, forest fire about obstructive sleep apnea. Those mm -hmm. recommendations have been taken by a lot of different organizations and drivers and so forth, both pro and con, and have been used. FMCSA regulates and says this. Um, FMCSA can't do this. The medical examiners, some of them believe that this is requirements and regulation and law, and it's not. Their recommendations to the agency, and the agency has never taken action on them. So we've never published a, a Federal Register notice for public comment. We've never gathered public comment. We've never published a final notice on um, the you know guidance for obstructive sleep apnea. So the only thing we have is what's in that advisory criteria, which says if they suspect obstructive sleep apnea, they must send them for further evaluation. They don't say what would lead to suspect it. So medical examiners use what they know in the literature, 
what they know from their clinical evaluation of the individual, what they know from studies that they've read, what they know from what they've been educated. They make the decision as to whether to send someone for obstructive sleep apnea studies, sleep studies. That make sense to you? Clear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, you know, and you're right. I mean, that alone, the MIXAC, the Motor Carrier Safety Advisory Committee, the uh, MRB, the Medical Review Boards, has caused a lot of confusions among drivers, just like you're saying. So, so to kind of <laughs> wrap it all up, what you just said was that those two, the MIXAC and Medical Review Board, are advisory committees that only give recommendations to the FMCSA, but they are not. Their recommendations, they're not uh, FMCSA requirements and regulations, which a lot of people that's, are confused about that. I mean, if, if MIXAC gives a recommendation, just like you said, Elaine, all of a sudden you're hearing, well, FMCSA requirement says this. Well, it's not. It's, it was just an advisory committee recommendation. Exactly. And then it goes, the seesaw is the other way. Well, if they don't have those requirements, then there's no law for it. And it's right down the middle. They don't have those prescriptive detailed requirements that MIXAC and MRB, the agency does not have that. But the well, agency you know, does have a regulation with guidance that I've mentioned a couple times in the advisory criteria that says, yes, if a medical examiner thinks that you have obstructive sleep apnea, he must send you for a test. Same thing as if the medical examiner thinks you have a cardiac disease, he will send you for a test. It, actually, obstructive sleep apnea is not treated any differently than any other medical condition, as Dr. Rosarian was saying. If you think somebody has some problem that they need further testing, you should send them for further testing. So well, gonna... you know, yeah, I, I, it brings me to a, a, another question I think that will help clear this up. Uh, a couple of years ago, of course, there was the guidance right on the FMCSA website. And, of course, that caused a lot of confusion. Um, it wasn't a rule. It was just a guidance. And, uh, anyway, a, a lot of hemming and hawing about that. And I guess uh, it was Congress had it removed. Uh, what was that? Public Law One One Three Point Four Five Point Four Five. Okay, and said that you, you can't have a guidance up there because you know you either do a rule on it or not. Well, essentially, what you're saying tonight is that there is a rule, a broad rule in the in the qualification side it's uh three ninety one I can't remember these things like everybody else does three ninety one point point four one b five okay you got it <laughs> okay uh but hey, I'm doing my job over here what are you doing <laughs> but anyway, so when that had to come down, they said, okay, you can't have a guidance, okay, so there's no rule well, they didn't go back and say. Well, there is a rule in 391, and it includes sleep apnea. Then they come out and say, um, oh, yeah, but now there's a guidance to the medical examiners. So now the drivers are confused. They're saying, oh, no, they had to take that down. Okay. Do you, can you see the confusion that's going on amongst the driving community now with all the changes and everything? It, it 
it really needs to be um it really needs some kind of a blog post is what it needs to explain the timeline of what has happened when did that uh, advisory um pdf go up on on their website to the medical examiners the one that you know suggests what they need to do and they must call for a test and everything when when was that added has that always been there or the um I, I'm not exactly sure what you're talking about. Are you talking about perhaps the medical examiner handbook? I'm, I'm looking. It says FMCSA bulletin to medical examiners and training organizations regarding obstructive uh, sleep apnea. And it says the purpose oh, of this was, bulletin is to remind healthcare professionals on FMCSAs. That, was, that, was, that went out in January of 2015. Okay. Okay. So that so, was the most recent one, and that was the agency's vehicle that they were using to try and clear up some of this confusion. And this and went to the advisors, the, the medical examiners. Went to the medic, all the medical examiners so the, and to the, all the training organizations who train medical examiners. Okay. Because uh, some of the training organizations who were training the medical examiners were telling them that the MRB and MIXAC recommendations were law. And that was making medical examiners think that they were law, and then medical examiners were telling drivers it's a law, and everybody got to thinking that having a BMI of 35 and an X circumference of 17, you know, was a law to have a sleep study. And it wasn't. Mm -hmm. It was all of that was just recommendations from the MRB and MIXAC to the agency, and the agency had not taken any action on it, so it hadn't become guidance and it hadn't become regulation. And that was what led, um, you know, all the controversy over it, led Congress to write the law, Public Law 113-45, which also is is misinterpreted a lot. So um, I can get into that in a little bit. Let me first answer your question. The bulletin that came out was a bulletin to say, here's what FMCSA says. And it actually, I have it right here, too. It says, it quotes 391.45B5, which is what I've read to you, 391.41B5. Um, the rule that says, you know, if you have a respiratory condition. It also quotes that advisory criteria that you put up on the website saying that um, if a medical examiner finds that someone suspects that someone might have obstructive sleep apnea, that they can, um, they must send the driver for further evaluation. And then it talks about the role of the medical examiner's clinical judgment, um, which is what both Dr. Rosarian and I were talking about. Um, it allows, the agency allows the medical examiners to make um, the decisions based on their clinical judgment and the best practices. That's basically what the bulletin says. So um, the bulletin also says the agency encourages medical examiners to consider following and making a certification decision. And it talks okay. about primarily safety, um, screening, some diagnosis, and some treatment things, but they're they're not saying you have to do this. They're saying the agency encourages medical examiners to consider, which is way different than saying this is the guidance. It's way different than saying um, this is rule and regulation. 
It's just saying the agency thinks these are some good ideas you might want to consider. So, so the bottom line is it's up to the examiner. That's really is, what. Yep, exactly. The bottom line is it's up to the examiner, and the examiner uses their medical knowledge, their evaluation of the patient, the best practices, the studies that have been out there. And just to mention, one of the reasons that the agency writes its regulations in such broad language, like you can't have a respiratory dysfunction that would cause, you know, uh, you to uh, be unsafe in the operation of a commercial motor vehicle. The reason they write it so broadly is because medical technology and the medical field discovers things left and right all the time. Three years from now, the technology is going to be very different than what it is now. Treatments, diagnoses, um, you know, testing, finding out about new diseases. I mean, Dr. Rosarian just went through the whole how we found out about sleep. All of this stuff is going on constantly in the medical community. But the regulatory community takes a very long time to develop a rule. It takes a good three years to develop a rule. So they don't want to put something in there that says, well, you have to use a dial, t a rotary telephone, because 10 years down the road, there may not be any rotary telephones anymore. They don't want to say you have to use this type of treatment device, because 10 years down the road in medicine, that may not be available. So they write it very broadly, and they leave the medical examiners in charge of making the decision based on the latest, newest, best information available at the time. Well, that makes sense. And, hey, listen, i got to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll, uh, I want to touch a little bit more on this public law 11345 with you, Elaine, and then, Doctor, I want to talk to you about, um, I mean, what, you know, what, a, what a driver can do if they feel like they, you know, they're not getting the proper medical evaluation. Maybe their motor carrier you know, made them go take a test or something. But a few more questions here for both of you and stuff. Got to take a quick break, but uh, hang in there. We'll uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Ask the Trucker Live on Blog Talk Radio. Don't go anywhere. Alan and Donna will be right back. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to Ask the Trucker Live. And I want to tell you how you can save big money with Pivot Technology Resources. Pivot Technology Resources is the trucking industry's only source for quality new and used mobile communications and asset tracking equipment. With Pivot Technology Resources, you can have the latest technology such as Omnitrax MCP50 and the MCP200 or PeopleNet VLU2 or PD4 and for around half the price of going directly through the manufacturer. Here's how they are able to bring you quality technology at such a low cost. Pivot Technology Resources obtains working in-cab computers from companies that go out of business, downsize their fleet, or change their technologies. Their team of professionals guarantee that they are in working order and even offers a brand new in-house warranty and all for about half the price. They even will buy your equipment as well. Find out more by calling 1-800-679-0177 and visit them on the web at pivotresources.com. Discover why so many of the most respected companies in the country have relied on their expertise. one 800 6790177 pivotresources.com
This is Ask the Trucker Live with Alan Smith. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We're with our guest, Dr. Randolph Rosarian, Certified Medical Examiner of the FMCSA National Registry, and Elaine Papp, former Division Chief of the Office of Medical Programs at the FMCSA, now with a consulting her own consulting firm, Health and Safety Works. And uh, say hello to Texas, Vermont, Oregon, Washington, Oklahoma, New Mexico for joining us. Appreciate it. Um, first, uh, Doctor, let me ask you real quick, and then we'll touch a little bit more on this 11345 public law, but... I just heard Elaine. Elaine said something that made me think. Um, what what can a driver do if they feel like, you know, maybe they're not getting the proper medical evaluation, or they, uh, you know, they they don't think they have it, or maybe they were told by their motor carrier, you know, you have to go take this test, and then the motor carrier used that against them to not hire them. Whatever the case, is there is there anything drivers can do when they feel that they're not receiving a proper medical evaluation? Um, well, first of all, you know, if they feel that way, I think they should make sure that what they're perceiving is really what's happening. Uh, and this goes back a little bit to what Donna asked earlier. Uh, would I screen a person with a big neck size to, to get a sleep test? The problem is we don't have a good screening tool inside the office. It's not like we have a blood pressure cuff or EKG machine where you can tell things. The screening um, uh, things that we have, such as the Epworth, all these sleepiness scales, are not really reliable or valuable in most situations because, first of all, the person can be unaware of these symptoms or just purposely denying them. So if they feel they're not getting a proper evaluation just being sent for to get an, a test done, uh, it should be uh, you should keep also in mind that because we don't have a good screening test inside the office, our only alternative is to really get a real test, which is a, a sleep study, to determine whether or not you have it. And the way we determine that is based on all those risk factors that we mentioned before. So no one's getting picked up, picked on, I'm sorry, or targeted in that sense. However, having said all that, if someone feels like they just walked into an office and and without even having uh, been giving any a proper evaluation in terms of a history, getting a physical, and they're automatically sent out the door to the sleep lab, uh, then, yes, the drivers have recourses. Um, they have their own driver advocate uh, associations, such as the OIDA and various other uh, associations they can go to. Uh, there, There is, uh, there is uh, some recourse also, uh, but it's it's kind of difficult. I've never seen anyone do it in terms of, and maybe Elaine can go into a little bit more of that a little bit later, uh, in terms of uh, having con- conflicting medical opinions from two different practitioners and what the driver can do. Uh, so there is a, a something in the FMCSA about 49 CFR 391.47. I remember talking once to, with you about it, Alan. Um, where you, you know a driver can get a second opinion in that in that manner, whether whether it is the motor carrier's doctor they don't agree with or the examiner they were sent to, uh, they went to on their own. Uh, there is also that as well. But the first thing to do is really really understand and be sure that 
you really are not getting the proper treatment because that can raise up a lot of a, a lot of stink, so to speak. Right. Well, there's there's another aspect that we we've heard about is uh, someone could walk in and they're heavy and without any kind of physical exam, they're told you're going to need a sleep study. Um, yeah. What about you had mentioned something that earlier, but I mean, what about these? Uh, I mean, what if you're just you know, big bodied and you know, muscular, like you said earlier. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, you know, uh, you have to look at. I mean, if you come in, a guy comes in and he's a big weightlifter. I mean, you kind of have to look at that, right? Well, uh, big bodied has a very specific term in medicine. Uh, BMI alone does not give us the whole picture. Uh, if you put BMI and you put a fat percentage next to it, you pretty much get a a whole picture. Yeah, you can have someone with a BMI and uh, overweight range. I say um, 26, 28, or uh, not not in the obese range, and have 8% body fat. Then you have a clear picture of what this person looks like. But most of us are not like that. If you have 40, 50% body fat, then you're obese. If your BMI is abnormal, there is no doubt about it. The guy can say, "I'm I'm muscular, I'm, I'm big bodied." All you gotta do is, is get a a body composition done, they'll show you how much fat you have. And it's not going to be lean tissue for most most of us, unless we're super athletes or super gifted by nature, which most of us aren't. So so that argument is usually uh, I can pretty much knock it down with the driver. You know, I'm like, you know what, I got a scale here. <laughs> it, it does bioimpedance. I can tell you what your percentage of fat is. And if you, if you don't believe me, and if you want to get on a weight loss program with me, I can do that as well. So, so that that thinking is really not valid because we have an actual way of measuring how much body fat you have, how much lean tissue you have, how much water, all, all, all that stuff. Um, so the what was the other part of your question, Ellen? But that, so if they just walk in and they really don't you right. know, do anything with them and just automatically uh, tell them, oh, you need a sleep study, I mean, without really looking for anything else, I mean, that's the opposite end of it. Also, right, where they don't bother right. to even but, examine you. Seventy percent or more uh, people who are obese will have sleep apnea. This is not a fifty-fifty chance here. So, <laughs> knowing that that you're at high risk uh, should be enough uh, reason for them to at least accept that they should at least get some kind of screening done. And yeah, no one's forcing anyone to do anything. If they come in, and I have a room full of, of drivers here, and and this person, sometimes they ask you, you know, I say, well, it, it is possible. Let's say someone who's 400 pounds comes in that I may not be able to give you a car today. Doesn't mean you can't drive, that you, you, you're going to fail completely. You're not automatically disqualified, but I may need to do other things. Doesn't mean he may not get a card at all, depending on the situation. He may get a temporary card. And at that point, if the person says, look, I'm not dealing with your doctor, and walks out the door, that's fine. But the, the point is... Uh, because there is such high risk in, in that population, most of the time, you know, you will not be wrong as a practitioner to make that assertion. You know, it's not a 50-50 chance that they have it or they don't have it. If it's that high and we don't have an accurate tool in the office to, to determine if someone has it or not, I don't think it's improper to, 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 to do that in that situation. And, and, and to tell you the truth, most of the people walking in, they're not going to be in that range that I see, at, at least anywhere where I practice. Most of the time, the other problems that drivers come in are hypertension, diabetes, and other stuff. 
that that they may even get limited uh, certification for. Not sleep apnea. It's not. It's not half the people that walk into my office. Okay, so I just want to clear something up that you said that you, you made the comment. Well, they don't have to get the sleep test, but Elaine said they're not going to get a call from me if they don't want to listen. Okay. Okay, that that's what I wanna that's what I wanna clear up because somebody will listen to this recording and say, Well the doctor said <laughs> you don't have to do no, it. No, 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 that's not what I meant. It means I have to do my job. If they don't agree, just like they don't want me to take their blood pressure, I don't have to give them a card, you know? Uh, it's the same thing. Right. It's not it's no different than that. Yeah. If they say, I don't want you to take my blood pressure, dog, I'm fine. Well, you know what? I can't give you a card. As simple as that. You know? Okay. I have another question uh, related. Okay, let's say the driver comes in. You tell him to get the test. Uh, you give him. What do you give him? Like a sixty-day card while they're they're doing all this. You know, it depends. I'm sorry, I mean Donna. Um, I give you two situations. I have one driver. I say they're both equally in the obese range. One guy is a local delivery guy who works with a partner, or let's say for it's a beverage delivery company, and and he's only working in the city, uh, and he his uh, symptoms are not bad, and he's honest about it. I could give him a, a three month card so they he can keep working, uh, go see a, a specialist or get the test done so that we can assess his situation. On the other hand, the other side of the coin, I have a guy who's equally obese. He drives over the road. He has serious symptoms. He's, he's falling asleep at the light. Uh, if someone is, if you think someone is an immediate risk to public safety, you cannot certify them no matter what. But if that same guy tells me, you know what, when, when I watch television, I, I doze off a little bit, or uh, I wake up tired, but I never sleep at the wheel, I never do this or that, I may give him a one-month card in that situation and tell him, you know, you need to get the test done earlier because you need to see what's going on. You're driving from here to California, and I don't think you're an immediate risk where you would suddenly uh, lose consciousness or cause an accident, but you need to do that now. But in either of those drivers, if either one of them, the long haul or the local delivery guy tells me, I'm falling asleep at the wheel every time I stop at the light, I'm not certifying them you know, until they get a test. So it really depends on the person's presentation and what you get out of the history and the physical. Okay, so if they do get, a, let's say, a 60-day or a 90-day and they get their um, test back and, indeed, they do have, uh, let's say, moderate sleep apnea and they get their machine, at what point, well, let's say they're right at the end of that 60-day card, do they get a renewal until uh, an extension until they're able to display the data that they're using it, or do they are they not allowed to drive until until um, until they can do that? Am I explaining uh, so that right? I think I understand uh, the way I've been working with drivers who have sleep apnea. I work with a sleep specialist. He's a pulmonologist, and he runs a sleep. I have nothing to do with him, with no affiliations whatsoever. I get reports back from him, and he tells me the degree of the sleep apnea, the severity of it, and the recommended treatment, and uh, what kind of effect the treatment has had on this driver and his recommendations, you know. Uh, and that way, if the person does get on CPAP, for example, and his 
apnea, hypopnea, AHI index is going down, and he's using it most of the time. This is what I've had written to me in a, in, a, in a medical report or consultation from the specialist. And so this person is compliant. The, the treatment is effective. Uh, if he had a three-month, he may go to a six-month. And after that, he gets evaluated again. Depending on the severity, uh, he may get a full year. But no one really gets more than a year in this situation because they, they really should be reevaluated every year at least. So if someone has moderate to severe and they're responding very well, and I get that kind of report from their, their treating doctor, they may go from three months to, to even a year sometimes. So it depends on the, uh, on the situation, the person. But the bottom line is uh, they're not going to come in my office and just give me a bunch of reading and say, here, see, I've been using it. I, you know, it doesn't, it, I don't think that's the best way of doing it. Um, that's why we have people that specialize in this. I'm not a sleep specialist. I understand a lot of it. But especially in moderate to severe sleep apnea, especially with uh, drivers that have comorbidities such as diabetes, hypertension, they should be under the, uh, the care of a, of a specialist, I think. Okay, so the answer is if at the 11th hour they get all their data back and they only had a two-month uh, card that you had initially given them until they got their sleep study done, um, and uh, they only had 10 days to be on the machine, they would get an extension then until more data can be um, retrieved? Well, you're, saying, you're telling me they're, they're coming the last minute? and They come in, you give them a 60-day card, you tell them, listen, right. I think you have sleep apnea, you need to go have a, a test done. And they comply, but they don't get the machine until, like, you know, 50, 45, 50 days into the two-month card, and I believe you need 30 days of data. Is not correct in order to, you know, really look at that properly? So do you give them an extension on the card, or sure. do they I have mean, to just... If the person is is willing to get treatment and is started in treatment or is about to start treatment and, and they're under the care of someone else who's giving the, uh, mm -hmm. supervising the treatment, that's, you know, that's more than you can ask for. And if they just started it, like you said, 50 days into it, I may give them an extension for a month or two. This is not written in stone, but just the fact that someone is willing to get treated and someone is undergoing treatment is the biggest first step. They can still continue to uh, you know, to get a card until they they improve. And this this is really important. And Elaine, let me let me bring you in here because what what Donna and the doctor has been talking is it's a very important issue and a myth out there. A lot of drivers, you know, are fearful of this. You know, we hear the severity of, you know, OSA, you know. So there, there, a lot of drivers were worried about, well, if I'm diagnosed with OSA, then I'm going to be taken off the road. But, I mean, give us the, the, the facts on that because, I mean, doctor was saying something, well, if they receive the treatment, I mean, that, that's very important for them to do if they think they have it. What what are the facts about if they're diagnosed with OSA, the chances of being taken off the road, but if they're following up with the treatment? Um, the, once you're treated for obstructive sleep apnea, it's just like being treated for any other medical condition. You aren't taken off the road for having the condition. As uh, Dr. Rosarian said earlier, it's un 
treated obstructive sleep apnea that is of concern because it has um, causes excess daytime sleepiness. Um, it's related to fatigue. It also causes the driver really serious medical complications like stroke and so forth. But I have to go back um, for a second and say that, you know, as confusing as it is to all of the drivers, I think all of this is just as confusing to the medical examiners. And I think the medical examiners, like Donna said, are getting this information and that information and so forth. And that's why the agency tried to send out this bulletin to clarify. I got, when I was working at uh, up in CSA up until mid-January of 2015, I received literally thousands of phone calls from drivers who were told by their medical examiner that they had the symptoms. They went to um, get the treatment. They, got the, they had to wait because of the lack of sleep labs and so forth, so they had to wait to get their sleep study. By the time they got their sleep study, they got their CPAP machine, but they hadn't been using it much, just like Donna's scenario. And in some cases, they would go back to their medical examiner and they refused to give them a second card to extend it. And that's when they would call FMCSA. And okay. I would call the medical examiners and talk to them and say, you know, you have a person, just like Dr. Rosarian was saying, a person who is being compliant. They're doing, they're jumping through all the hoops that you tell them to jump through and they're doing exactly what you've told them to do, it isn't their fault that the sleep lab couldn't take them in time and that by the time their card runs out, they've just gotten their machine to start the treatment. And I have been asking the medical examiners, many, many, many different medical examiners, to be reasonable and to look at the situation. If you have a compliant driver and the driver is, livelihood depends on having this medical card and they're doing everything that they should be doing, then you give them an extension on the medical card so that they can follow through and get their their printout and so forth and demonstrate that they are, are in compliance with the use of the machine as well. So I believe very strongly that everybody has to um, come together on this it's not us and them. The medical examiners need to understand what the rules are. The drivers need to understand the rules as well, what they are, what they aren't. The medical examiners have to understand the situation and not be black and white about, well, this says this and this says that. They have to be, you know, take into consideration the driver, how he's behaving, what his compliance is with all of the recommendations that you've made to him to go to further testing and be reasonable about giving this person an ability to continue their livelihood. So I exactly. think medical examiners, I think, need to also come into a little bit better understanding of all of these pressures that are being put on the driver. You have to have this mm -hmm. test because you have this problem. Okay, that's a really serious medical problem. I need to get the test done. But you can't get into a sleep lab right away. So mm -hmm. do you then punish the driver? No. You say, okay, you give them, you know, some space to get this done. And you just, the medical examiners have to just document, document, document so that they're covered in their decision-making. Um, 
So that's kind of my perspective. Did that answer your question? Yes, yes, absolutely. And and I'm glad you you know you, you shared that about the medical examiners and because it's not just the the drivers complaining. I mean, th- this is this is their livelihood. And a lot oh, yeah. of them do want to be compliant. And, and I can, uh Yeah, and I had one conversation with a medical examiner. Um I was on the phone with her for 2 hours because she kept saying, "Well, in my training they said this." And I kept saying, but I'm in charge of the division. I'm telling you, the <laughs> was not right, you know? Right. So, right. Uh, yeah, it, it, the, the medical examiners get very confused, too. And so well, doctor, they need... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, now I have a, a another somebody's posting on Facebook now. I'm telling you, the boards are are really active right now. Well, no, you should see our screen. <laughs> okay, and uh, they're saying that um, you you're only allowed to have an in lab test. It, it's not allowed to be done at home. Uh, who wants to take this? I can take it as a regulatory body. We don't have any requirement for in lab versus a poly some uh, you know the home, home test. Okay, because we know that the Phoenix um, Sleep Solutions, with Greg McDermott, he um, he's, he has a home test that's uh, acceptable. Yeah, yeah we so don't the have we, the agency. The Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration does not have any preference on which test should be done. It's whatever test is done that makes sure it's accurate. Some home studies are accurate. Some are not. Well, who who determines if the test you took was accurate or not? Who who makes that call? The medical examiner. I think the medical. Ex- I think that you use a test that is a, accepted by Medicare um, reimbursement. Medicare reimbursement does not reimburse things that are not considered to be accurate and efficient. So, okay. um, any okay. kind of test that is, you know, or I don't know, um, Dr. Rosarian. Does the American Academy of Sleep Medicine have any ratings for home studies? Um, I've seen in some of the literature uh, reviews and stuff, and they have different type of machines uh, that have proven to be more uh, consistent in terms of data retrieval, and, uh, and they're listed, and they grade them in type 1, 2, 3, so depending on how well they've been researched. So home testing is acceptable. Uh, and that was in the latest bulletin that the FNCSA gave out to the medical examiner. So um, I don't know where that person saw that on Facebook, but you know uh, the, the latitude is given as far as what testing device and is used, home or, or, or sleep lab, as long as there's a chain of custody that is followed. All right. Well, let me ask you. We're kind of winding it down here. I'm watching the time, Doctor. Let me ask you real quick. Um, this is just kind of off the cuff. The FMCSA National Registry. Um, what's the prime primary benefits of that that you've seen? Has it upped the game? Oh, I think so. I mean, um, especially uh, I'm sure Elaine can tell you. There's a lot of work that's gone into developing this organization. For to provide best uh, best practices uh, and best services to the drivers. Prior to that, um, if if we're con- if we're confused now, if a lot of examiners are confused now, imagine how it was before that. Uh, and I practice.
just even before the registry and the type of calls I would be getting are anything from what form to use, what's the hypertension uh, criteria. Uh, People were totally clueless at that time. Uh, At least now, uh, everyone has some kind of formal training. Um, Everyone is made aware of the rules, the regulations, and how to properly evaluate uh, the drivers. And doctors don't have an excuse and say, I just didn't know anymore because only people who have been trained are allowed to be in it. So from that standpoint, it's, it's, it's a huge, huge improvement, I think. You know, may I also oh, um, say sure. something? Sure, I'm sure Elaine wants to add to that. Yeah, oh, Alan, sure. Go ahead, Elaine. When I was still working for the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, we found huge number of fraudulent medical examiners. Um, we wow. ended up bringing criminal charges. We ended up bringing um, all sorts of um, problems came up. And uh, these were people who had done exams on drivers, and the, the, the medical examiners either weren't licensed or uh, at all had no license to practice. Um, there were medical examiners <laughs> who, who were... Um, really? Yeah. There were medical examiners who were having their nursing aides in their office do the physical exams and fraudulently sign the medical examiner's name. Wow. Um, all of this came up after the National Registry, so we were we're finding a lot of, of fraudulent medical examiners, and that means we're protecting the drivers too. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I had I've had exams done like that where really the the nurse or assistant pretty much did everything. The doctor just signed it, but you know I didn't know any better. I just <laughs> I just went along with it. But it's amazing that you actually found all that stuff. I mean, the ones that weren't even licensed. I mean, that's that's pretty astounding. Yeah, it sure is. I have a question for Dr. Rosarian uh, coming in off of Facebook, and I'm I'm only reading the ones that are really relevant to what we're talking about now. But he he makes the the statement that um, if you have a temporary card because you're going to have your sleep study done, and then you get into an accident, can the CME be held? Uh, liable or sued well well i I think elaine brought the point that the best you can do as a practitioner whether you're a medical examiner a doctor physician nurse is to always document and have reasonable uh uh, notes that you that can be followed that you were doing the best that you can to take care of that person anyone can sue you for anything uh, I mean, I do procedures on patients. They can sue me because they don't like my injection, for example. So, is that is, can that happen? I, I imagine. But if once they go over your notes, if he if he didn't write one note as to why you gave the temporary card and and the history his, uh, and what you found in the history and the, and, the, and the physical findings that led you to make that determination. In other words, if you're sloppy and you don't document what you do and it's you know your notes are shady, uh, then you have less to fall back on. But if everything is written clearly and you document it, you can't prevent people from having accidents. It's going to happen. Uh, then at least I'm not saying you're covered, but at least you have <laughs> you have an explanation. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, sure it can happen. 
I think the point he was trying to make was once that happens, um, and if I'm re- if I'm reading this correctly, I think the point of what he's saying is he's looking at the writing on the wall, and if something like that happened, they'd say, okay, no more temporary cards. You can't drive until you have your sleep study done and you start on oh. your CPAP. I think that's what he's reading into uh, the po- the possibility of of you know what could possibly go wrong, will go wrong type of thing. So I think that's just another, you know, just being a little bit fearful of this whole thing because it, it isn't really so, so black and white and in stone, you know. It creates a lot of this, uh, well, what if this happens and what if that? So, you know, I think it just goes along with the whole program here. Yeah, listen, uh, yeah, and speaking of the program, kind of winding it down, but let me grab, I think this is Bob with um uh, truckers for a cause. Let's get him on here real quick. Then we'll kind of wind it down. Elaine and Doctor will get some final comments from you. I know it's uh, uh, spending a lot of time on your Saturday here, but we appreciate it. But uh, I think that's Bob. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you. You got me on. Yeah, I finally got to you. What's going on? Well, again, this is a topic that you could spend three or four hours on when you start digging into the details. We'll just throw one little one out. We were just talking about liability, and that's a real huge concern among many medical examiners. Yet none have been able to cite an actual case where a medical examiner was successfully sued over the sleep apnea question. In fact, there's two major cases. One involved a death involving a Celadon driver, and the other one would be the 2009 um, uh, Miami-Oklahoma accident investigated by the NTSB. In both of those cases, the medical examiner was not part of any lawsuits and, in fact, was kicked out of the lawsuits, Um, and both those cases involved drivers who were uh, diagnosed with sleep apnea but had continued to drive untreated, which is totally illegal. So So, But the problem is you have a very good medical examiner on as your guest who is doing what Elaine has been saying medical examiners should do, which is to use their best medical judgment. Unfortunately, many drivers run into an examiner employed by a large nationwide chain where the chain is liability paranoid and may only give the driver a 30-day card and not give a renewal because their employer is concerned about getting sued. So, again, Elaine has stressed there needs to be flexibility for the medical examiners, because they've got to make some really hard judgment calls, yet there are a lot of really good medical panel recommendations that have been given to the agency that sometimes the less than effective medical examiners tend to ignore. Okay. Well, I think that that pretty much covers covers that because these are all questions 
that do arise in people's minds. You know, you can go on and on forget forever. What if this and what if that? And, you know, and, and like you said, uh, we were discussing the other day, you know, we could have three shows on this, and which we probably are. And the next thing we're going to talk about are the the treatments. I mean, we didn't even get to treatments tonight. I don't know. I, we may have time for a couple, Elaine. Uh, I want to bring up the fact that... Um, is is sleep apnea reversible? If you lose weight, will will you no longer have sleep apnea? I mean, I I think that's like the the thing a lot of people must be thinking about. Well, again, it, you know, it's a, that's a, sort of a broad question. In some cases, I would suspect it does. If somebody loses weight, they uh, would relieve the pressure. Uh, one of the things we talked about prior to this call when we were planning the um, uh, radio show was the idea of sleep apnea is a mechanical problem. There's an obstruction of the airway because of the tongue dropping down, because as you age, the muscle tone um, weakens and isn't able to hold the um, airway open when you're sleeping because all muscles relax anyhow. Then the extra weight on the airway. So depending on the age and some of the other factors, losing weight may relieve sleep apnea. I've known people who have no longer have sleep apnea because they've lost a significant amount of weight. Um, there are others who, as they've gotten older, maybe they have a problem with their jaw that causes the, um, the airway obstruction more than the actual weight on the neck, and they may not be relieved by having losing weight. Dr. Rosarian, do you have some ideas on that? Well, um, if people may think, well, if I go on CPAP, is this going to get rid of sleep apnea? And and while they still have the weight, no. You still have to keep using the CPAP. If you miss using the CPAP or you don't use it, it's just as good as not not using it at all if you miss a CPAP uh, session. People who have lost weight, uh, and as you mentioned, because of the mechanical effect of the excess tissues, uh, having the pharynx, the the airways, uh, can sometimes eliminate uh, their sleep apnea. Just like people who have type 2 diabetes who lose a lot of weight, the diabetes can go away sometimes because it had a problem with insulin resistance that was resolved. Uh, But just because you get on CPAP, and some people do lose some weight and, uh, while on CPAP, but not significantly enough for them to resolve their sleep apnea. Um, that's kind of like what what I've been seeing and reading in, in the literature. Yeah, and that's a good point to make because I think one of the myths out there is a lot of people, drivers and everybody, and I, I, I used to think it too before I, uh, you know, did research on it, but I just thought uh, – Sleep apnea only occurred in people who were overweight or obese. That that was my frame of mind. But Elaine and Doctor, what y'all are saying, I mean, there can be um, physical abnormalities like the facial jaw, like Elaine mentioned, or some kind of you know medical other medical condition. It doesn't have to be overweight or or just obese, right, Doctor? Uh, and that, that's correct. Uh, um, there are people who have jaw facial abnormalities. It could happen at any age, even in children. Um, there are uh, kids that are born with certain genetic uh, abnormalities that, that are more prone to it. 
so it, it it spans the whole uh, spectrum, so to speak. But uh, in, in terms of the aging population that we're talking about, uh, obesity is the biggest risk factor, uh, you know, as, 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 that, that we have for, for sleep apnea as we get older. Um, not to forget that, uh, you know, we go back a little bit to the sleep, uh, the sleep studies, the sleep uh, physiology thing. We're all at risk for sleep apnea uh, because, to some extent, it may not be full apnea. It could be hypopnea or just slowing of the breathing just by the fact that all your muscles have to relax. Uh, uh, and and uh, when you relax and the effect of gravity on these excess tissue or even on regular tissue tends to close the airway down anyway, even if you don't have excess tissue. You have excess tissue, it happens to a greater extent. So that's why we, none of us know what happens when we sleep, obviously, unless we're hooked up to a machine. But I would have to guess that most people have some degree of hypopnea, if not sleep apnea when they sleep, just based on the mechanism of sleep itself. Well, I, I agree. And I was going to say that too, but, you know, just being a little truck driver here, I wasn't going to say anything, but I think I heard I heard you say something earlier, I think about 70% of overweight, overbeast people have sleep apnea, but I've often wondered, you know, Americans work longer hours than anybody else in any other country, and we get more lack of sleep than any other country, I believe, and I, I think that alone is going to raise that percentage. I think there's more people out there with sleep apnea that doesn't doesn't even know it and it doesn't have to do with overweight or obese or anything. And that's, uh, if I'm following you right, doctor, that's kind of the line you were going to then. Right. And they, and they don't necessarily have significant sleep apnea that will come under the rules and regulation that we're talking about here. They may have mild right. to moderate sleep apnea. Um, it doesn't mean they shouldn't get treated at all, but they're not at that high-risk group. Uh, so... Uh, Two-thirds of Americans are overweight and obese, uh, as you pointed out. There's a big percentage of us. So it's not just truck drivers. Sleep apnea is becoming an issue not just in truckers but in police officers and in firemen as well. And these are like first response people that have, you know, that are out there risking their lives to save our lives, and they're at high risk as well. If you think about the policeman sitting in his patrol car waiting for the next call, stopping at, you know, the Dunkin' Donuts or the bagel place. You know, this, this is the same process, and it's not just truck drivers. And that's why they feel targeted, tr- truckers, because they'll bring up those professions. Well, what about the <clears throat> the pilots, the surgeons, the police, the fire? They'll, they'll say, why are they targeting just us? And they aren't uh, they aren't testing these other uh, professions as well, and you know they just start to to feel like you know they're being picked on type of thing. Um, well, I think it's coming because it's like our last show. The the point I brought up, Donna, was 27 percent of the American population don't know they have diabetes yet. So right. it's kind of along the same line. I think it's the same thing with the sleep apnea. But listen, our time's kind of winding down. But doctor, uh, listen, I guess. Um, just kind of final comments, and then Elaine, final comments from you as well. But, Doctor, I guess a good – you can have any final comment you want, but I would think that the big thing to get across here is that um, this uh, sleep apnea is – it's a very serious medical condition that needs to uh, be taken very seriously. Uh, absolutely. And 
I think I had the most fun part of this talk, and I thank you for allowing me to, to talk tonight. But I wanted be, to get across to people that, that sleep. Uh, you, cannot, you cannot really start talking about sleep apnea without talking about normal sleep. And sleep science is a real science. It's not pseudoscience. And it, it's a relatively young discipline. And Dr. Um, uh, you know, you know, Dr. Dement, that was uh, pioneering this field, went lobbying Congress back in the 50s and 60s to just even accept the fact that there are such things as sleep disorders. So we've come a long way. And when they walk into the office, it's just not just me flashing my medical examiner card to give them a hard time. I'm really trying to help people understand that it's a real disease so that they can be uh, they can be healthy and not be a hazard to themselves and, and to the public. Is, is it a disease? Because Donna had written down disease, and I asked her, is, is it a condition or a disease? But you just said disease. I mean, is it a sleep apnea disease? Well, you know, condition, disease, uh, I think it's a little bit semantics here. Anything that okay. you need uh, <laughs> medical attention for and be treated, uh, <laughs> you know, hypertension is a condition, it's a disease. Uh, it's okay. not, I'm not medicalizing it, so to speak, because I'm a medical doctor, but the fact is that if it has uh, serious consequences in the body, it's a disease. Yeah. What, what kind of, Obesity is the disease. Sleep apnea is a disease. We have the the whole metabolic syndrome picture that causes heart disease, strokes, and cognitive okay. problems, and and leads to accidents. So it's all part of the disease process. They're all connected and not really isolated in that sense. Okay. Well, that was just a curiosity question on me because that's the second time I'd heard that. Hey, I'm going to try to get a quick caller in here. Just popped up, Louisiana, area code three three seven. Go ahead. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me, and thank you for having this uh, conversation. Right, glad to have you. Uh, there was one thing that I think is uh, is missed in this. Well, a couple of things. Uh, one thing in particular is people want to feel good about making the roads safer, and I believe that's one of the reasons why we get picked on more than anybody else. And the other thing that I wish that more people – uh, particularly regulators would tell the examiners is, hey, remember that the whole goal of our regulation is not to whether they got sleep apnea, not to whether they got high blood pressure, or not whether they're 300 pounds overweight. And I'm being facetious. But the whole idea of this thing is to, A, make the road safer, but, B, to get the truckers that we have on the road, get them to a place to where they are healthier and that they are willing to be treated by a family physician that will take their best interests at heart. If we try to beat them over the head with our regulations, then we'll get what we've been getting for the last 20 years, and that is truckers that will refuse to go to the doctor. And and that's why that's a very good point, yeah, and is. that's why we have our health series. This is the third show, and we are trying to encourage uh, drivers to become healthy, to care more, because it has been the on the back burner in their lives for such a long time. Uh, they do have such a stressful lifestyle, and the last thing they have been thinking about is themselves, the food they eat, the exercise. It is a sedentary uh, lifestyle and uh, boring, so there's smoking going on, there's lots of Pepsi drinking going on, and a lot of diabetes going on uh, because of it. And I do believe that sleep apnea is just one 
side effect of an entire lifestyle. The other thing I wanted to bring up also is since sleep is so important that the FMCSA should also look at the other things that are going on to deprive the professional driver of sleep, uh, including um, uh, uh, HOS, um, force dispatch, just like Alan covered in the beginning of the show, not being able to find adequate parking. And, you know, you have to be fair across the board, not not um, discrediting this disease in any way. However, by saying that there are other things, two weeks ago or three weeks ago, we had a driver on the show who beat a, a case in Georgia because DOT will come up during his mandated break. And uh, that was a huge case that they ended up dropping because – Sleep is important, and when you you mandate somebody to take a a ten hour break and then people wake you up just to look at your logs um you know that can't be done so since this is making such a headline of the importance of sleep and and it's a serious disease, I think it should be taken across the board in other areas uh of f m c s a ruling that's that's just my my little spin on the whole thing. That's that's her, that's her little spanny lane because she's thinking you're still with the FMCSA. So. No, I know she's not. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I tell you, but but you know the caller, uh, Louisiana made a good good point. You know, it's it's about safety. It, it's even more about safety. It's about making the drivers healthier, not just for themselves or just, and for their family and loved ones too. But hey, our time's winding down. Uh, Elaine, any uh, any final comments? Well, first of all, I want to thank you and Donna for bringing this out into this radio show because I think it's really, really important. Second, I want to say here, here, I agree completely with Mr. Louisiana. I have as my mission for my company to bring people together to focus on health and safety and help them understand the importance of health and safety on the road. Safety on the road is the main purpose for all of us. Nobody wants to be in a crash. I think drivers need to think ahead when they're coming up on their their physical exam. What can they do ahead of time to help that exam be the, um, the best that it can be? If they need to go to somebody ahead of time, if they think that they have symptoms that are going to be told, well, you have to go get a test, go to the doctor and get it done first. Um, mm-hmm. Bob Stanton has some really good ideas of how to get um, a family practitioner to order the test for you so that it's covered by what other insurance you have. Dr. Rosarian had some really good ideas in the article he posted on your website, Donna, about um, what a driver can do to, you know, kind of make that physical exam go well. And I think mm-hmm. that we all have to stop fighting each other and start working together Drivers right. have to stop lying. Medical examiners have to stop being, you know, unreasonable. We all have to kind of come together in the middle to make the roads safe. And obstructive sleep apnea is only one of many, many, many medical conditions that we need to be concerned about. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, uh, we're trying I just, to wind it down, but I want to grab. I'm go not. Go, I'm not going to get all to all the callers, but Arkansas area code four seven nine. Uh, we'll. Grab you here real quick. Go ahead. Hi, Alan. Al Donna, Celeste Willis. I was calling and wanted to ask Elaine. 
during your tenure at the FMCSA, how many over a ten-year period? How many accidents could be contributed to uh, sleep apnea? You know, I am not familiar with the statistics, but I do know that one of the problems that we have in the medical community and that we had in the medical programs office was that it's not one of the first things that anybody goes looking at when they have this big fiery crash going on. So it's very hard to figure out what's going on with obstructive sleep apnea and crashes and so forth. I don't know the statistics. You'd actually have to call them. Um, I never really worked on those specifics. And, and you know, we're going to have follow-up shows. Um, Bob Stanton and um, Greg McDermott have uh, agreed to come on a show. We still haven't addressed, and I thought we were going to get to it tonight, the costs, because that's a, a number one concern among drivers is they don't have the money for this. And there are trucking companies that um, are now beginning to uh, pay for it. But, you know, that's a you know, uh, a, a great thing to bring up, and I'm sure if anybody has those stats, Bob Stanton does. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we'll continue the series, but, hey, we're kind of winding down. But, uh, hey, Elaine, really appreciate it. I mean, is there anything you can tell us about your uh, your consulting firm, Health and Safety Works? I mean, are, is just uh, any website, or are you still working on it, or what can you say? Well, yeah, you know, I just retired the mid-January, so I've been kind of chilling out for a little while, and my website is under construction, and okay. so as soon as it's done, it will be Health and Safety Works. It's called Health and Safety Works LLC. I do have an email address. Um, it's healthandsafetyworks15 at gmail.com, and the 15 is a 1-5, you know, a number. And so if people have some questions, they can email me, but I can tell you that I can't answer four million driver questions. So, um, <laughs> and, so hold it down. That's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we were receiving about three thousand telephone calls a month in my office, and there were ten of us, and we had trouble keeping up with it. And we were getting two thousand emails, and we had trouble keeping up with it. That was every month. So, oh, wow. um, there's, there's lots of stuff going on. Um, I'm going to be working on two things. One is tra- transportation health with um, the focus on FMCSA truck and driver. I really want to focus on health and wellness and seeing what we can do to get drivers healthy, uh, what they can do in on their own, in their cabs, tips, and, and so forth. And then I'm also going to look at some issues with occupational safety and health because I used to work for OSHA too. So that's oh, kind of okay. the group. I'm going to work with groups, do training and presentations and research and advising consulting. So thank you for asking. That's really nice. Oh well, that's good. I mean, you're uh, yeah. You need to chill out a little bit because it sounds like you're going you're going to be all busy again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, listen. Thanks. Thanks for uh, you know sharing so much time on a Saturday evening. I really appreciate it, and uh, we'll have to do this again. It's a great show. And I I do believe that um, I'm looking over here on blogs and things like that. Doctor Rosarian has a blog, and he writes a lot of articles too. So. I'm trying to find the um, URL well, for that. Yeah, well, we've got them right here. Doctor, time's winding down. But listen, I know you are at usdotmedicalexaminer.com. Uh, anything else you'd like to share and get out there? No, uh, uh, the, that's my main website, and the blog is dotmedicalexaminerblog.com. 
So uh, yeah, it's got a lot of good articles. Have... I was reading them. Well, <laughs> thank you. I try to answer them before they're asked. So because I also yes. cannot answer open questions. So <laughs> I hope you yeah, read. Well, them. it's a ton ton of information. And listen, I know you're in Queens. And Donna's been wanting to go visit New York City for quite some time. If we ever make it up that way, I'm just going to come walking in your office. You there every day? Absolutely. Uh, Give me a call. We'll chow down, uh, and I'll show you around. All right. (laughs) All right. Hey, sounds good. Really appreciate it. Thanks again. It was a really great show and a lot of great information. And we'll follow up on the shows. But Elaine and uh, Dr. Rosarian, thanks again. And listen, quick break. We'll be right back to uh, wrap it up here. up truckers are you looking for deals on trucks trailers parts or equipment or maybe you need to sell something truck related well there's a great spot on the web where truckers deal with other truckers no middlemen involved that's why we call it trucker to trucker.com there's no charge at all for looking and if you want to place an ad for what you're selling it's just 19.95 and it runs till it sells so whether you're buying or selling it's time to log on and take a look trucker to trucker.com check it out that's trucker to trucker.com Hey everybody, Alan Smith here, and I want to tell you about TruckerLawyers.com. TruckerLawyers.com helps drivers with their legal needs, and they specialize in workers' compensation, trucking accidents, employment law, and other areas. TruckerLawyers.com arms you with important information regarding workers' compensation and your legal rights, and they are also available to help you find assistance for additional legal issues. This includes determining how to get you the best benefits possible for your situation. The website TruckerLawyers.com is a resource where you can learn more about your legal rights as a driver. Feel free to continue the social media conversation by liking them on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash TruckerLawyers and follow them on Twitter as at TruckerLawyers. Call them to talk through your questions at 1-800-736-5503. Just a few minutes left, but Donna, how many people do you know that'll take two hours out of their Saturday evening and provide such great information? Well, I I, I know, and I, I can't imagine, and I'm so grateful for them. Um, and who does that? I'll tell you who does that: people who really are concerned uh, about health and uh, these issues, sleep apnea, all this. Even the listeners um, who have stayed on the line tonight. Uh, the callers, you know, these are people who are very, very concerned about these issues. But I can't thank um, Dr. Rosarian and Elaine enough for for giving up their Saturday night. We sure do appreciate it. Yeah, good show. And we'll have them on in the future and everything. And I really do want to go up there and uh, we'll visit. Uh, well, you haven't been to Queens. Queens is pretty cool, actually. Well, I've been there in a big <laughs> semi-truck, but, you know, I want to go there in a you know nice little compact car and be able to get out and walk around. And, you know, we, we're Elaine. I mean, we'll find her in D.C. or wherever she's at. We'll we'll all get together. How about that? Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll just do that. We can't, yeah. I mean, I practically lived at Shea Stadium when I was living in New York. Yeah, so. I'm going to get you back on New York. <laughs> hey, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Really appreciate it, all the listeners and the callers and those in the chat. And, uh, listen, we'll catch you next time. And uh, 
special thanks to uh, Dr. Randolph Rosarian, uh, USDOTmedicalexaminer.com, and Elaine Papp, formerly of the FMCSA, with a new firm. Watch for her new firm, Health and Safety Work, that's going to be coming out. So thanks again, everybody. Have a great evening, and we'll catch you next time on Ask the Trucker Live. You've been listening to Ask the Trucker Live with Alan Smith. On behalf of Alan and Donna Smith, AskTheTrucker.com, TruckingSocialMedia.com, NorthAmericanTruckingAlerts.com, BlogTalkRadio, and Ask the Trucker Live. I'm J. Michael Collins. Until next time, drive safe and thanks for listening. Lord, have mercy 
on the, the trucking break On the trucking break Lord have mercy on the, the trucking break 